in the uh, mid-1990s, a group called the Hebrew Roots Movement began to emerge. And as they increased in popularity, uh, they drew in many of thousands of professing Christians into their ranks. Uh, This is a, a group that has no official, formal creed or hierarchical structure. Uh, But one writer describes them in this way. He calls them a movement that insists that we must resurrect first century Judaism, our Jewish roots, and the milieu and lifestyle of first century Jews and impose them on both Jewish and non-Jewish believers. That's a summary of their of who they are, what they are. So they insist that we must return to laws in the Old Covenant that Christians have historically seen as no longer binding upon us, including a return to Old Covenant feast days, seventh day, Sabbath worship, food laws, and so on. I know that some of you have known people who've been taken in by that very movement, Uh, people who seem to be Bible-believing folks. Interacting with this group, this Hebrew Roots movement, brings up the question of the New Testament believer's relationship to the Old Testament law. And even if you've never heard of the Hebrew Roots movement, you've never met one of their adherents, you have no doubt wondered about this relationship between the Old and New Covenants. Why it is that some laws would seem to just transfer straight over into the New Covenant, into the New Testament, while others do not. You may be wondered why it is we don't obey certain Old Testament laws when they are obviously incredibly important uh, to the people of Israel and under the Old Covenant and to God. I think it's safe to say if we don't have some measure of clarity on these matters, we will be open to being misled, to being sucked into something like this Hebrew Roots movement. I don't know what else would explain why so many thousands of professing Christians would find that appealing and end up wandering into it, but that they haven't had a very clear understanding of what the Bible teaches regarding the New Testament believer and our relationship to the Old Covenant. Such teachings come in under the guise of being biblical. They claim to have a high view of the Bible, in fact, a higher view of the Bible than even you have, because they uphold the Old Testament in a way that you do not. So I can remember dealing with Hebrew Roots movement, for example, and they would typically start out with a phrase like, you know, you, common evangelical in the pew, have been taught that the law is bad. It's not good. It needs to be done away with. Uh, But... Then they would appeal to some verses that speak of the law being good. They would speak of, they read Old Testament passages that clearly have a high view of the Old Covenant and the law. And this is their entryway in. They appear to have this high view of the Old Testament. So it can be difficult to wade through this. And this is similar to what Christians had to face in the first century, in the early days of the church, of the New Covenant. In a number of places, Paul squared off in the New Testament with groups insisting that Christians needed to keep Old Covenant ceremonial laws if they were to truly be pleasing to God. If their worship was going to be acceptable, if they were going to be a true worshiper of the Almighty God, if they were to be complete 
before Him, then they must become, you must become Jewish. Be circumcised, keep some of these, keep these ceremonial laws and so on. And in Colossae, they faced this kind of teaching. And we're going to see next week, uh, they, they, there was more to it than just insistence on uh, old covenant laws. There was more to their uh, errors. Uh, but this included an insistence on these ceremonial laws. In verse 16, we're told of Colossians chapter 2, they, these believers were being judged for not keeping the old covenant law. And today we're going to be looking at Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. I'll invite you to turn there. And in these verses, the sum of Paul's instruction to them and to us, to you, is that Christians are not to submit to old covenant ceremonial laws because those laws ultimately point to Christ who has now come and who is sufficient to make us entirely acceptable to God through faith in Him. So he's saying we are not to submit to those who would judge us as defective for not keeping those laws. Those laws point us to Christ. Christ has now come and we are complete in Christ, acceptable to God by faith. So that, I think, is the main purpose of these verses and indeed of this sermon. Uh, so if you're in Colossians chapter 2, we're going to read. We're going to look at 16 and 17, but we're going to read through to verse 19. It says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. So, as I said, we're going to look at verses 16 and 17 today. And uh, if you want, I'll give you the outline in advance. Uh, we're going to first look at the command. The command in the first part of verse 16. The command, don't submit to judgment. Secondly, we'll look at the matter at hand. Namely, insistence on old covenant ceremonial law keeping. It's the second half of verse 16. I'll give you a second if you're furiously writing. There's a few, I think. The matter at hand, insistence on Old Covenant ceremonial law-keeping. And then thirdly, the reason for the command. Now, the reason, he gives that in verse 17, these laws are but a shadow pointing to Christ. So let's look first at the command. Command, verse 16 begins, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you. Now it's interesting uh, he addresses here the Christians. He doesn't address the false teachers who are making these judgments, but he's telling believers here not to let them make those judgments. Now, of course, we, you cannot stop people from saying what they're going to say. You can't stop people from making judgments about you and declaring things about you. But Paul is prohibiting the Colossians from yielding their neck, as Calvin said, to the demands of these false teachers. 
That is, the command here to these Christians is to not submit to such judgments, to not allow it in that sense, to not go along with it, to not yield your neck to the noose that they would tie around it as they condemn you. So to not let them pass judgment is to refuse to submit to their claim. Now, this is not saying we should never submit to any judgment against us. There are judgments that we ought to submit to. For example, if a brother or sister goes to you to show you a fault, to show you a sin that you've committed, and they appeal to God's word, and if that is in fact indeed, if they're right, if it is indeed sin, then you ought to submit to that judgment because it's ultimately God's word judging that as sin, and repent of that. So he's not saying don't submit to that kind of judgment. It's not all types of judgment that are to be refused. So what is Paul talking about? Well, he elaborates on the particular kind of judgment he tells us to refuse submission to. This is the second point of the outline, the matter at hand. So He says, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon, or a Sabbath. Now, I've used this word ceremonial law a couple of times, and I do believe that these laws listed here in verse 16 fall into that category. And I recognize uh, the Sabbath complication, which I'll get to in a a minute. Uh, But I want to take a moment and just try to explain what I mean by ceremonial law for a second, and then come back to verse 16. So a pretty typical way, a Protestant way, a Reformed way of understanding the law of Moses, the Old Testament law, although this is not just Protestant, it's not just Reformed, it has its roots, and you can read uh, Augustine talking about these distinctions, even Tertullian and uh, Aquinas and others before the time of the Reformation. This is a pretty typical way of dividing up and understanding the Old Testament law And that is to see that there are three major categories of laws, a threefold division, if you will, of laws. So first, we have the moral law. The moral law. This refers to laws of God that transcend all time and all covenants. These are things that are always, in effect, continually binding on all of mankind. Uh, This would include things like not murdering other people, not lying, or the positive command to worship the one true God and Him only. So these are commonly, you know, people would speak of the the Ten Commandments as being an example of moral law, the sum of the moral law. So, for example, we we know, uh, not only do we see that you're not supposed to murder in the Ten Commandments, we know long before the Ten Commandments were ever given, long before the covenant made at Sinai, it was wrong to murder. It was wrong, it was sinful for Cain to slay his brother Abel. So it was wrong, it was sinful before Moses, and it remains sinful today. So that's moral law. Second category of laws in the Old Testament is civil, or sometimes called judicial laws. These are laws that govern the nation of Israel as a nation. Think civil government. One example of such a law would be having six cities of refuge 
where the manslayer could run for refuge if he did something that accidentally resulted in the death of another. This has to do with how they would try and convict criminals and those who committed murder. This is all part of how Israel was to govern their nation, civic law. The third category of laws in the Old Testament is commonly called ceremonial. Ceremonial law, or others might call it ritual or even cultic law. Not cult like we think of cults today, uh, but cultic in the sense of worship, laws of worship. These are laws that governed Israel's worship under the Mosaic Covenant. So this includes, for example, laws about sacrifices, laws about the temple in all of its designs and its location in Jerusalem, who can serve there, where you can go, what the priests were to do, the laws that governed the feasts or festivals. And this word here in verse 16, translated festival in the ESV, is often translated in the New Testament as feast and refers to these seven major Old Testament feasts. And also, food laws. Food laws fall into ceremonial law as well, which I'll explain more in a moment. So again, what I think we see here in verse 16 are ceremonial laws, laws that governed and directed the worship of Israel under the Old Covenant. So the first thing, again, mentioned here is to not let anyone judge us about questions of food and drink. Questions of food and drink. So food laws under the Old Covenant, these tend to confuse people. Uh, some have made health plans out of these, thinking that that's their, their main focus. Well, that's not true. That's not why they're there. Whatever health advantages might be gained by those laws... Health is not the primary issue. Rather, keeping these laws distinguished Israel from their pagan neighbors, showing that they belonged to the Lord. They were physically separated, outwardly holy unto Him through keeping these food laws. So Leviticus 11 is a very clear place, especially verse 44, where we find that instruction. It marked them out as separate unto the Lord. And they thereby enable the people to remain ceremonially clean, which further enable them to enter into worship, to temple worship, without the threat of being cut off from the people of God. In Leviticus 7, we read there that if a person was ceremonially unclean, there are different ways you could become such, including if you eat the wrong things. If a person is ceremonially unclean and goes to the temple and offered sacrifices in their uncleanness, then they were to be cut off from the people of Israel. And so these food laws are very closely, carefully tied to worship under the Old Covenant. They enabled ceremonial cleanness and thus enabled worship to proceed unhindered. Additionally, drink offerings were part of many sacrifices. If you read, for example, in Numbers 29, there's a whole bunch of sacrifices mentioned, uh, animal sacrifices, and there's always this tie to drink offerings as well being offered at the same time. Moreover, eating a part of one's sacrifice 
was a common part of, of offering sacrifices to the Lord. And so food and drink were intimately connected under the Old Covenant to worshiping God in these different ways. So we'll come back to the significance of this in just a moment. Back in verse 16 here, Paul goes from food and drink to then he talks about not allowing judgment with regard to a festival. As I said, this word for festival uh, is often translated as feasts in the New Testament, refers to the Old Testament feast celebrations. And these were being insisted on by these false teachers in Colossae. In addition, they would point to the New Moon Festival. This was celebrated monthly when the moon entered the first of its eight distinct phases. And this new moon, the first phase, marked the beginning of a month in Israel's calendar. So they had a lunar calendar. And so they were to hold this celebration. Numbers 28, 11 explains the sacrifices that were to be offered at that time. This again, this is a, a worship time. A ceremonial law. And then he mentions here, not to let anyone judge you with regard to a Sabbath. Now this is a, a contested word here. Uh, this verse enters into the debates and questions about the Sabbath and whether uh, Christians have to keep some sort of a Sabbath, whether we should think of Sunday as a Christian Sabbath or not. I take this verse, I think, in a fairly straightforward manner here. The Sabbath, the weekly Sabbath observance on Saturday, and the special Sabbaths tied to festivals, as given to the people of Israel under the Old Covenant, is not to be imposed upon New Testament believers. I think that's what this is saying. Uh, some people... This word Sabbath here, it's actually in the plural. Um, so uh, some would render this Sabbaths and say that really what he's talking about here is not so much what we find in the fourth commandment and the Saturday Sabbath, uh, but is referring to the special Sabbaths tied to these festivals like the new moon and, and, and the Day of Atonement and so on. Um, that's plausible, that's possible. Um, but I, I, I would understand all of the Sabbaths under the Old Covenant to be included here in what he's saying. That these Sabbaths, as given to the people of Israel under the Old Covenant, is not to be imposed upon New Testament believers. Now, even those who hold to the view that Sunday should be considered a Christian Sabbath would still agree with what I just said. So sometimes I think we can have a misunderstanding of that view where, um, you know, we read this passage and it just seems on the surface to deny that we should ever think of any sort of Christian Sabbath. And uh, I, I don't think that really addresses the argument um, about Christian Sabbatarianism. And I'm just going to take a couple minutes to explain some things about this. And it's going to raise questions that we probably won't answer um, and that's fine. We can talk about this another time or afterwards. Happy to do that. But, but in sum, just to understand, um, the argument for a Christian Sabbath is that there is a creation ordinance that one day in seven ought to be observed as a day of rest 
and worship to God, beginning with God's rest that he takes after creating the world. Obviously, we find that in the opening chapters of Genesis. And so this keeping of of a day unto the Lord for rest and worship was in operation before the Mosaic or the Old Covenant was formed at Sinai. So, for example, in Exodus 16, there they're collecting manna and they're not to do it on the Sabbath day. Well, this is actually before the Sinai Covenant is struck. And then, of course, it was commanded as part of the Ten Commandments as part of the Mosaic Covenant in Exodus 20. And so from the time of Adam... Until the resurrection of Christ, this one day in seven was kept on the seventh day, was kept on Saturday. But when Christ rose from the dead, he inaugurated the new creation and the new covenant. And with it came a new creation ordinance, a new day to set aside, namely the Lord's Day or Sunday. This being the Sabbath that yet remains for the people of God as we await our final eternal rest in the new earth. So this is, this is what the argument is. So again, the argument is that the principle of one day in seven is part of moral law, perpetual, and that from creation to Christ it was observed on Saturday before the Mosaic Covenant and under the Mosaic Covenant it took that particular form, but it has now changed in form with the passing of the Old Covenant and with the inauguration of the New Covenant. So I'm not going to chase that any further at this point. Uh, That's just a quick summary, not a full defense of it. Uh, Our own doctrinal statement as a church um, neither confirms nor denies this. Uh, I think there is room for both views to be held, uh, and I know that both views are held uh, within people in this church And I think at the end of it all, uh, you are here, are you not, on a Sunday morning. You have prioritized this. Uh, You understand the importance of this, whatever your view of of this matter is. Uh, You've requested time off work. You've prioritized being here to worship the Lord with his people. And this we rejoice in. So so what what I'm saying about this particular text is it does not rule out the possibility of there being a... Christian Sabbath. But it does say that we should not be made to keep the Jewish Sabbath or any of the Jewish Sabbaths as they were given under the Mosaic Covenant. So again, I'm using that word Mosaic Covenant and Old Covenant interchangeably. Uh, The Mosaic Covenant is the the covenant God struck with the people of Israel at Mount Sinai, formalized there. From the New Testament perspective, as was read earlier, is referred to as the Old Covenant, as Jesus himself declared he was bringing about a new one. And the Old Old Testament prophesied even that there would be a new one to come. So, even if one day in seven is part of moral law, What Paul is saying here is that the ceremonial laws of the Old Covenant, including the Old Covenant form of the Sabbath, these are not to be imposed on New Covenant believers. And so these teachers in Colossae are wrong. They're wrong in insisting on these ceremonial laws. And Paul is saying, do not concede the point to them. 
Do not give your necks to their judgments. And so it is with you, with us. Whether pressure might come from something like the Hebrew Roots Movement or the Seventh-day Adventists or some other form, let no one pass judgment on you in these matters. This brings us to Paul's third point, the third point of the sermon here. That's my third point. The reason for the command. The reason. Well, this is plainly stated in verse 17. These, these laws, these things being insisted on, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. And here is why these ceremonial laws are not to be insisted on. They are faint outlines of a greater reality, which is Christ himself, who has now come. And now that he has come, these ceremonial laws rightly, necessarily give way. They have served their temporary purpose, which ultimately served as pointers and precursors to Christ, or we might call them types of Christ. Paul has already made this point in previous verses. So notice at the beginning of verse 16, there's an important word that I skipped over, didn't say anything about. He says, therefore, let no one pass judgment. This command to not let anyone pass judgment, matters of the old covenant law, is rooted in all that he has already said, particularly in verses 9 through 15. And if you recall, what he's saying is that all you need for salvation to be complete before God is to belong to Christ Jesus. And you possess all of this by faith in Him. By virtue of being united to Him by faith. So if someone comes along and says, no, no, you also need to keep the Old Covenant ceremonial laws, if you would actually be right with God, they are in great error, and there's really two, I think, serious errors. The first, they completely misunderstand the purpose of the Old Covenant and the flow of the Scriptures, the flow of redemptive history. That's the first. The second, they undermine the sufficiency of Christ's salvation and God's grace by introducing legalism. I just want to look at these two errors for a moment. The first one, their misunderstanding of the Old Covenant and their misunderstanding of the flow of the Scriptures, the flow of redemptive history. Paul, if you remember, he's already made a shadow and substance argument when he talked about circumcision. So remember in verse 11, physical circumcision in the Old Testament under the Old Covenant pointed to this greater reality of heart circumcision or regeneration which every believer has received in Christ Jesus, he says. So shadow, physical circumcision, substance, heart regeneration from Christ, performed by Him. And so all of these ceremonial laws in the Old Covenant 
As I've said, they governed worship. It was to be performed in the temple. Their sacrifices were, which was to be placed in Jerusalem. There's laws about all the different sacrifices, how to offer them, when to eat them, when not to eat them, what foods to eat, what activities to keep in order to be ceremonial, cer- ceremonially clean and able to participate in worship at the temple. Who can go into which parts of the temple as well? All of these governing their worship and how one draws near to God in their worship. So let me ask you, in light of Christ's coming, how is it that people now draw near to God and to His throne of grace? How is it that we can come, though incredibly stained with sin and unclean before God? What enables you to approach God in worship? course, you come in the name of God's Son, Jesus Christ, and in His righteousness. And so you come with boldness and with confidence at God's own invitation, boldly and confidently because of the certainty of Christ's saving work, the surety of the salvation that He has accomplished in His own blood, in His own life, in death and resurrection. What would eating food add to this? Or not eating food? Nothing. Nothing. Hebrews 10 says, And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. In Christ you have what you need. You are cleansed and can come to God. Hebrews 8, well, really all of Hebrews, is making this whole shadow to substance argument. The old covenant has passed away. We read Hebrews 8 earlier, makes that very point, using the word obsolete of the old covenant in light of Christ having come. But it continues the argument through verse nine and it, or chapter nine and into chapter ten, spelling out this shadow and substance argument. So these old covenant sacrifices and worship ceremonies, they give way in light of Christ's coming and offering of Himself, an offering that truly cleanses the conscience of worshipers. This is how we draw near to God, through Christ, in His name. So these ceremonies and food laws and so on serve no more purpose to this end. I'd also ask, where is it that we now find our true Sabbath rest? Well, it is in Christ, who has secured for us an inheritance much greater than Canaan. We rest now in Christ, but we still gather weekly as we look ahead to the fullness of that rest, our eschatological rest that will come when Christ returns, which will be yours as a blessing of His gracious salvation. And so these shadows have their substance in Christ, 
to become infatuated with these ceremonies is to be so amazed by shadows. Imagine how impressive these shadows are, avoiding the thing that is casting the shadow that is infinitely more complex and wonderful. Just as you are a much more uh, impressive being than the shadow that you might cast. And so these shadows give way to substance, namely Christ and the salvation that he has won. And this is the trajectory of Scripture. And so to return to the Old Covenant is to go backwards. It is unnecessary. I think it is to misunderstand the Scriptures. And it's completely unprofitable. So that's the one error, this grave misunderstanding of the purpose of the Old Covenant, the flow of the Scriptures, redemptive history. But there's the second, their undermining of the sufficiency of Christ's salvation and of God's grace through introducing legalism. So it's much more dangerous than just a, you know, a disagreement over you know, a few minor aspects of the Old Testament. I believe that what these Colossian teachers, these false teachers, heretics, were doing is in addition to misunderstanding the flow of the Bible, from shadow to substance, they were also making these ceremonial laws necessary for one's justification. Whether or not they would have used that language, they maybe didn't, but it seems that this is what they were saying, that in order to truly worship God, truly be in right covenant with Him, to truly be clean and able to therefore approach Him, you must keep these laws, which implies you need to keep these laws in order to be right with God, to be justified. So they're adding law to the grounds of one's justification. It's not just Christ alone and what He has accomplished in His life and death and resurrection. It's not just rooted in His righteousness. Rather, you need to contribute to this by keeping these laws. You need to do these things. You can't just approach claiming faith in Christ. So they're denying God's gracious redemption, substituting in these elementary principles of the world in which redemption is at least partly coming by means of keeping laws, of works that we do. And they're passing judgment on those who would disagree with them on this point, binding everyone to these laws. They are blending gospel with law. And so Paul is bringing out his artillery to destroy such arguments, to destroy such religion, and to implore these Colossians to withstand it. This is one of the key differences with how Paul is going to go about giving some commands, or we might call them laws, for Christians to follow, particularly as we get to chapter 3. In chapter 3, he's going to give commands. I put these things off, these ungodly virtues, and put on that which is virtuous. Hold on, Paul, are you, are you, we might wonder, are you rendering Christ's work insufficient? Are you saying grace through faith is not enough? We need to add to this in some way? Well, no, of course he's not doing that. Those commands in chapter 3 are 
clearly stated to be for those who've already died with Christ and have been raised with Him to new life. They have already been granted all they need for salvation by virtue of believing in Christ Jesus. God's gracious gift to them. Nothing in chapter 3, none of those works that he summons believers to, none of those contribute in any way to one's justification. Nor do they render you more impressive to the Lord. This is where we speak of the necessity of holding this important distinction between law and gospel. Laws are commands, and gospel is good news about what God has done for you in Christ. Law is works, and gospel is grace received by faith. And we confuse and blend these two realities, law and gospel, to our own peril. So someone might say, you are saved by God's grace through faith and doing your best. Well, that starts out sounding good, grace and faith, that sounds like gospel, and doing something. Well, now you've added works to it. You're blending the two. And it destroys gospel. Whatever the law might be that you're adding, Saved by God's grace through faith and circumcision. By God's grace through faith and Sabbath observance. And ceremonial laws. And anything. Brushing your teeth. Whatever you might say is the thing. You destroy gospel. This is why, you know, when you think of the Reformation, when the Reformers are looking at Scripture and seeing what it says of God's grace... uh, Roman Catholicism did not, nor does it now, deny that we are to have faith. And it does not deny that God is gracious in granting salvation. They speak of grace. They speak of faith. The problem is they add to that other works and other sacraments as part of the grounds of justification. And this is the same kind of thing that's happening in Galatians as Paul's taking on the Judaizers and what was happening in Colossae here in the book of Colossians that he's addressing. And so not only, the Colossian argument is not simply that they they find some good or something in the old covenant laws, as if there's, you know, we can learn some things from it. We would affirm that, the ceremonial laws. There's much we can learn and, and teach from. There's principles within them that point to Christ and fill out our understanding. There's much good to learn from them. They're not just saying that, though. They're insisting on these as a necessity tied to justification. And again, that's not always explicitly stated as such. It's typically done through confusing language, upholding grace, speaking of the importance of faith, but then also somehow speaking of the necessity of works somehow contributing to that salvation. It's the grounds of salvation. And it's just this logical conclusion needs to be made. 
that it upends grace. It destroys gospel. It's no longer good news because you have to contribute to it. So I think the more consistent way of understanding what the Scripture teaches of good works is that they are fruits and evidences of one who has been saved by God's grace. But they are not in any way contributing to our justification or supplying the grounds of our being made right with God. And so, if someone insists on returning to these shadows, seeks to bind your conscience to them, and moves these matters into this realm of justification, you are not to submit to this judgment. Such people do not understand the gospel nor the flow of the scripture. This flow of redemptive history that moves from these shadows to the substance which is Christ. So again, I think that obviously the, the, this takeaway is to not submit to those judgments if someone might try to make that of you. And also I think the flip side of that is to continue as we've been saying for weeks and will continue to say forever, to rest all of your hope of salvation in Christ and to know that you have all that you need in Him. This is what Paul is getting at. This is gospel. This is good news. You're not adding to this. So when you've had that garbage day where you know you've failed miserably and have sinned, and now I've got to go to church and I've had a terrible morning so far and I've yelled at my kids, I've fought with my wife, I feel like a horrible human being and now I have to go sing and praise and worship. The good news is that it's Christ who makes you right with God. Because of Him, you can come, confess that to God and come boldly before the throne of grace and pray and worship and find grace to help in time of need. That's the good news. If you smuggle in your works into that, you'll be either arrogant because you think your good works you know, make you good before God in some way, or you will be forever depressed because you will know that you continually fall short of God's glory and you never measure up. And so be released from this with the gospel, the good news that you are saved, you are justified right with God solely because of the work of Christ because of His righteousness imputed, given to you, credited to your account because of faith, just believing this as a gift of God's grace to you. This is what Paul is zealous to maintain here. And this is what makes this teaching so deadly in Colossae, and anywhere it rears its head today. All you need to be right with God, to worship Him, is Christ. And so trust in Him. Stay there. Make this your boast and your glory. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, We do confess that we are sinful, unclean and unworthy to come to you. 
Father, your word reveals us very plainly in so many ways, including in the fact that there were so many of these ceremonies and these things that the old covenant believers needed to do, and you were showing them that we cannot just march into your presence any old way casually. Father, we have sinned against you grievously. And you are holy. And so we confess this to you again, that even now and even through this week and this day, we have been sinful. In ways I'm sure we don't even know, but you do. And so we acknowledge what your word reveals that we have no hope in ourselves. We have no hope in our works of law, in our own efforts. Our only hope of forgiveness of sin, our only hope of being declared righteous before you, of being justified, our only hope of eternal life is found solely through your gracious gift to us of salvation, through your Son, Jesus who has died and taken our sins upon himself, paid the penalty for our sins, has risen from the dead in victory over death and over our sin. Father, we lack righteousness, but he has earned righteousness that he credits to us, and it is in his righteousness we stand. It is in his name, therefore, that we come to you. Father, I pray that this would be a delight to us. God, for all who are laboring under the law, who are laboring under the heavy burden of their sin, Father, remind us of the greatness of your salvation in Christ. Give us joy in what Christ has done. Not joy that we still, in our practice, in our person's sin, but joy in the greatness of the salvation that you have granted to us. Father, renew our minds, renew our hearts all the more. Continue your sanctifying work. Father, we long for the day that we will stand complete in Christ before you. When our resurrected bodies will be granted us and there will be no more sin we will be finally conformed into the image of Christ. Father, we look forward to that time and that day. And we await the surety of this promise you've given us. So Father, I pray that we would be quickly, joyfully repentant of our sins. And rejoicing in the work of Christ. Resting purely in Him. We pray this all solely in the name of Jesus Christ. The only reason we can come and offer you anything of any acceptability. So we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.